Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for a brand new edition of Collider Ladies Night Pre-Party. I'm especially excited because my guest today... Aria, you are literally the definition of why this arm of Ladies Night exists, because it is somebody that our audience might not know yet, but comes out onto the scene with such an exceptional performance that it is a name you need to know now. Aria Mia Liberti, congratulations on all the light we cannot see. Thank you. Exceptional. Thank you. How is this your first performance? I, I don't, don't understand. Know. <laughs> don't understand. Don't know. It was crazy, because it was like, it's a big deal and I was like I didn't know how to do anything when I showed up on set so it was amazing I've got many questions about every single step of that Go process for it. we're going back to the very very beginning okay first. let's do I, it I'm curious when you were growing up what was the thing that you used to say like I am dreaming of becoming that when I'm older I think it was it was depend it depended on the week mostly so I definitely went through all of the phases that people go through like I wanted to be um, a princess, and I wanted to be an opera singer and a ballerina. Um, but the two things that I always went back to, um, shockingly not cowgirl, but because um, I was raised vegetarian, so shockingly not cowgirl. But I always went back to actress and president. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I was a very conflicted child in that sense. I mean, I'm cool with both of those. Yeah. You, t- you take the actress box. <laughs> Next, we've got to work on president. Yeah, I have a few years to go before I am qualified. So, like, that's okay. Okay, so I okay. think we can, we can develop some skills before that, which is I believe. Good. You but have yeah, so no, many skills You don't want to do is. that anymore. It's I, so funny. I'm definitely going to get into the incredible amount of majors and minors you pursued I in school. Have, yeah. But first, I was reading that when you were younger, you were even doing like one woman shows for your family. Like, so yes. I was curious, do you remember the specific thing that sparked that interest in performing? I don't know, but my mom will tell stories about like when she was pregnant and I would kick when she would put on movies or musical theater or opera singing. So she was like, anything that was like really dramatic and theatrical, I would start to kick. And so I guess that was how it started. And then when I, I would, when I was really little, before I could talk, I would not be able to go to sleep unless there was something playing, whether it was like a radio drama or an, you know, like a soundtrack to something. And so it wasn't really a surprise to anybody that as soon as I could actually like somewhat speak, 
I was lining up the dolls and the toys in my crib into rows and like putting on shows for them or like giving speeches to them. And then as I got older, I forced my family to do that, to take the place of the Barbies and the teddy bears. And so they had to endure any time I would watch a movie, I memorized things really quickly. And so I would memorize all the lines in the dance routines and everything and put them together into a one woman show. And then when I was like six or seven, um, I just decided I was going to shove the dream down deep inside and I never approached it again. Yeah. So oh, many interesting, many, many follow up questions first. So I don't Go forget for it because I did read that uh, you're you're a, a master movie line reciter. <laughs> what What is your favorite movie to recite or even maybe a specific line you love saying? Oh, um, I think the one I've been throwing out most recently I always, always go to Harry Potter, but like the mm. one quote that keeps, seems to come up recently is it does not do to dwell on dreams and mm. forget to live. Remember that. <laughs> so that was, oh, that's always a go-to. Oh, that's But um, there is a really good Galadriel quote somewhere that's something like, um, I don't remember the exact quote because I, I need to do a rewatch. It's been a year or so. But like, it doesn't matter how small you are, you can change the world. And I love that. And so that's one that I'll, I'll pull out a lot now because I'm like, sometimes I feel really small, but I'm like, oh, you have to still keep speaking up. It's okay. I love the deep meaning in yours. Thank Meanwhile, you. <laughs> I'm walking around saying, hold on to your butts because I love oh, Jurassic no. Park. <laughs> oh, my God. Sir, I was going to ask you, like, what is your go-to? Oh, that is mine. I can okay. recite I can recite the two most important movies from start to finish, Jurassic Park and Billy Madison. This is good. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. That's you so do. fantastic. Hold on to your butts and the shampoo and conditioner speech. That's so no. Oh, my God. <laughs> Completely different examples there. So going back to what you were saying, yeah. I think you mentioned at, at about seven, you kind of bottled up that interest in acting yeah and I why never did, did it why did you do that and then what kind of you know uncorked the bottle I guess so I think like when you are a member of a marginalized group society just kind of puts you in a box and I don't think it's anybody necessarily doing it out of malice but I think it's just how our world operates it's like you have to stay in this box and you have to do the things in the box um, and if you deviate outside the box then you're either absolutely ridiculous or you're just wrong, or you're impractical, or whatever. And so um, I learned that when I was about six or seven. And I think psychologically that kind of makes a lot of sense. And I had this experience of, like, I, I desperately wanted to be involved with school plays. And sometimes it was the type of thing that, like, everybody could be involved in, but I wasn't involved with, with it. They wouldn't allow me to be involved with it. Or it was the type of thing where, you know, everyone else got to sing and dance, but I would you know, stand on the stage with a sign because they didn't want to engage with me for some reason. And um, one of the things that I did get to go do was a, a community play and it went really well and I was so excited. I got to sing and dance in it and it was like everything I ever wanted to do. And I was probably, I think I got cast at like six or seven in it and I, I did it and I loved it and the people were really sweet to me. Um, and I also recognized that there wasn't like a future in it at that time too, even though they were so supportive and nice. Um, and I didn't, I loved it so much that I was kind of like suppressing it. I didn't want to keep dreaming if I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere. Um, and someone saw the play and was like, we would love for you to come and be, and it's like, a, it was like a high school production. We need a little girl. And I'm like, okay, that's fantastic. My parents were so excited. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And I had, I watched the movie version of that musical and I was so excited. I memorized the whole thing and I knew everything. And um, I got there and I got into the costume fitting and they were literally measuring me. And my mom said, we would love for her to please have 
um, a PDF version of the script so that she can enlarge it on her computer when she goes home. And like, she's obviously already memorized the movie, but we know there are going to be changes because it's a high school play. And uh, they told me to get off the stool for the seamstress to like stop measuring me for me to get off the stool. And I got in the car and I was in tears. They said they were going to find another little girl who didn't need that because all everyone should be using a hard copy script. And I'm like, for something so simple, and now that I'm in the industry, I know that like everybody uses a PDF script, so it makes me even sicker to my stomach than it did then. Um, I got in the car and told my mom I was never going to do it again. And so I just, everything inside, and like there was a, like everything bottled up inside, and my mom says now that she's like, there was a transition, like when you learned that you were different, and you actually like understood that the world was treating you differently, you turned into like someone who is very closed off. So instead of being like the little girl who was always singing and dancing and wearing sparkles and didn't care if her colors were mismatched and her outfits and the mismatched socks and being loud and outspoken to like all of a sudden a very demure closed off person. And it all happened around that time. So it's very interesting. Oh my God. That's, I mean, absolutely terrible to treat anyone like that, especially when, as you said, there are many many options out there out there yeah and it wasn't like you know 1952 where you yeah, didn't know really. what a pdf was so yeah <laughs> not so, that old <laughs> so so you you stop pursuing the arts for a bit there yeah you, you do accomplish so much i was looking it up and it said that you majored in philosophy communication studies and political science science and then on top of that minored in ancient greek language and rhetoric yeah. i do want to hear what uh drove you to pick those particular topics but like first how? How know. do you do all of that in undergrad I alone? I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of it was just like I'd spent my whole life like the the theater access story and the school plays access story is one thing, but it is such a Disney version of the stuff I had to endure in my childhood. Um, it and I, I you know, it, it's it's a fluff version of like I've had I had to go through so much um like neglect and abuse and trauma, and the only people countering any of it were my mom and dad. And so I was always focused on my education because I realized that if I get a good a good education, I can speak out well and with credibility that maybe I could change something so that some other kid didn't have to go through the abuse and neglect and stuff that I did when I got to school. My parents homeschooled me after a really big legal battle. And I also was just like speaking out in the like local politics and trying to change policy and my parents helped me, and I realized not a lot of kids have that. Like, they might go home to the same type of abuse and neglect that they have in school. And so when I got to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was like, I was really good at science. So for a while, I was pre-med, actually. And so I started my first year, like, working in mosquito labs and kinesiology labs and, like, just, like, in wet science labs. for the first. And it was just really crazy, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and the professors were really great, and it was the first time outside of my family that anybody actually told me that I mattered. And so my first day of school and I went over to the professor and she told me that I mattered was just like mind-boggling to me. And she happened to teach rhetoric. And all of the things she was saying in the class really resonated with me. She was saying like words have power to shape our reality and we can tell stories and they can shape how we perceive each other and that can change policy but it also can like change our minds and how our society works and I thought that was so cool and so she was also just a wonderful person and I met so many other wonderful professors through her and that was what I chose to study 
And I basically had to narrow down the rest of my majors because I realized I couldn't do biology and neuroscience and anthropology and everything else that I wanted to. So I narrowed down to um, political science and philosophy as well as the communication degree. And then I was like, well, I really like the ancient world and I like ancient history. So then I added in ancient Greek and I did a lot of Latin and um, we designed my own minor in like the history of rhetoric, which was really cool. And then I went to my master's degree and I got, um, sounds so nerdy. Like when I lay it out like this, it just sounds really bad. <laughs> I don't know. And then I went into my, my master's degree and I got this um, Fulbright scholarship, which was mm -hmm. just really competitive. And I had really, really wanted it. I would just like, that was the thing that when I was a freshman in college, I knew that was my end goal. That's what I wanted to achieve. And I got it. And it was the, probably the best program in the world for what I wanted to study at the master's level. And it was absolutely wonderful. And I got there and it was the middle of COVID and I was miserable as hell. And I didn't know why. And so during that time, as I was pursuing my master's and completely quarantined and I couldn't go to classes, my best friend and I wrote a novel. And I'm like subtly starting to think, I think I might want a career change. I love what I study and I'm grateful that I did it. And I succeeded against literally all odds, which is a cliche, but for me it was very true. But I think I want to do more storytelling. I feel like I'm in academia and I'm kind of in this box and it's not really for me, but the people around me really love it. And that just tells me that maybe I don't fit. Um, and then I got to my PhD program and I'm still thinking about these things and I'm still questioning these things. And I made it about six weeks and then I had a career change. Mm. <laughs> the biggest career change yeah. ever. Yeah. And a career change, like, I imagine it's so, so scary when you have to change course and commit to something new. It's terrifying. You couldn't have started off any stronger in this business when you were weighing the idea of whether or not to change your career path. Mm -hmm. Was there any, like, source of confidence you turned to, whether it was someone cheering you on or even something you were telling yourself to be like, yes, like, I need to take the plunge and take this risk to pursue my dream? I never told anybody. That was what was really interesting, I think, because I went into it thinking I had to take charge of my own happiness. I was pretty miserable. Um, and I couldn't find any comfort in what I was studying anymore. And I'm like, someone sent me the link to a casting search for All the Light. And I said no. And I hadn't talked to her in years. And she's like, please, I just see you doing this. Would you consider it? And then I said, well, if I'm going to sit around and be unhappy and sad and I don't know what I'm going to do and I just feel... Like I'm not myself at the very, the very least I could do is sit and feel someone else's sad because she's such a traumatized character. And I got on camera and I sent in my first take and I didn't have friends. So I read all of them now Mark Ruffalo lines with myself and it was probably really bad. But somebody saw something decent in it because they called me back. Um, and I thought the whole time, like, maybe this will just give me the confidence to be the little girl that I used to be in the glitter and the mismatched socks singing in Walmart with my mom apologizing to people under her breath. Like, I'm so sorry. She's, she didn't think that. You know, so I think I would like deep down, that's really all I wanted to get out of it was like maybe the courage to audition for a school play at Penn State where I was or audition for like the improv club. I really wasn't thinking that I was going to make an actual career change. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I just was enjoying the process so much. And when I got called back, maybe the third time, it was to Sean, to the director. And then that's when I started to tell people. Um, I told my mom and dad and I told my best friend. 
And I was really nervous because I'm like, it just seems so impractical and so silly that I could even think that this might be for me. Cause like at the end of the day, it's probably going to go to a famous actress. Um, but they were still looking at me and I didn't know how the industry worked. So I just thought they were looking at everybody, but I was just having a good time. And then the next thing I know, I got the part. I have so many follow-up questions. Yeah, <laughs> First, I need to go back to the beginning of the audition process. Yeah. When when someone sent you that casting call, why did you say no initially? Um, because I told her I didn't act. And I was like, it's going to go to an actress. It was I like mean, very I understand yeah, that. Yeah, like very logical <laughs> answer. That's uh yeah, traditionally that's how it how goes, it works, but that's yeah. why that's why we need people like Sean in this industry who have an open mind and know who, the importance yeah. of finding new talent. And, and at the end of the day, it's not too it's not like it's completely unheard of. Like it's happened a few times mm-hmm. with like but it's it's a lot of kids I think who get discovered that way. Not like ancient historians. <laughs> so it's, it's just really weird. <laughs> so the next follow-up question yeah. I had was when you started, you know, whipping up that first tape, but also going through the next stages of the audition process, mm-hmm. did you have any idea of how that traditionally worked? And no. if not, were there any resources that you turned to to learn a little bit about what you needed to do each step of the way? Well, I think what's interesting about this is the, you know, the the first thing was a self-tape. The second thing was a callback with an American casting director because they had casting directors in every part of the mm-hmm. world looking for this girl. And it was led, being led out of the UK, but the U.S. casting director was a woman named Suzanne Scheel, who I am still friendly with, and she's just fantastic. And she um, got on the phone with me, and she's like, any questions before we do a read-through? And I'm like, yes, yeah, so what's a casting director? <laughs> What do you do? Because I know that there are directors of movies, but what's a casting director? And so she had to explain that to me. Um, And then she explained what producers were because I didn't know anything. (laughs) Honestly, I think a lot of people who even work in this industry still don't know what producers are because there's so many different levels of producer. And sometimes I hear the question, well, what is the difference between an associate producer and executive Executive producer? producer. And the answer is never the same from project to project. No, from project to project. And that was what was so cool. She she told me, like, in this project, these people are doing blank and the next thing that you do. And I, like, I remember her saying that and the next thing that you do, it's going to be totally different. And I'm like, but I don't act. I've never acted before. And she's like, yeah, but if this is something you want to do, you'll find a way to go do it. And I'm like, really? And like, that was the first time that my like mind had opened to like, if you like this process, you could go do it. Even if this isn't a thing that you get cast in, if that makes sense. And so she answered so many questions. Um, The casting assistant um, also worked worked with me and she answered a lot of questions and she's around my age and then I got to the UK casting directors uh Lucy Bevan and Emily Brockman who I didn't know were (laughs) a really big deal at the time (laughs) so um and they were really wonderful with making sure that I when I was getting into those meetings with Sean and we were reading for an hour or two on end together that I felt prepared um and I've since learned that I think Sean knew what he was doing like knew he was that came out wrong. I'm sorry. No, I think Sean, Sean does know what he's doing, but I think Sean knew what decision he was making mm-hmm. before, like, well, before oh, I knew. Yeah. And so I think that's why he was doing, like, these longer reads with me to sort of test and see my reactions to things. And it was a really cool process. And I was just like, I think I have the confidence to, like, audition for a community play. Um, And I had this whole speech prepared for when I inevitably got rejected and when they hired like the famous actress to ask if he thought it was good enough for that. And also to just keep 
please keep looking because how cool would this be if you did cast an unknown, unheard of person who, like the character, was blind or low vision? I'm like, this you could just go do this. This would be so cool. And um, I never got to give him the speech. It's okay. <laughs> Uh, what a special experience having such supporting, uh, supportive casting directors Cassie, yeah. every step of the way because yeah. that could make or break someone's experience starting out in the industry yeah, and can. just their understanding of it too. And I feel mm-hmm. like we don't boost up casting directors as much as we should, but I'm no. glad you had a special experience They were there. really special. And I know like Sean obviously is at the helm, but I have to give credit to to these women mm-hmm. for really doing the work to find their person and it happened to me, me, but it could have been anybody and they were really committed to doing the work. So that was really awesome. Now I have to ask the cliche question. You've probably been asked a couple times when you found out that the role was yours. How did you celebrate? <laughs> um, there's definitely a video of this on the internet. Actually, um, they posted my reaction. They posted my audition, but they also posted my reaction to getting cast. And um, I thought I was being rejected and you could see it all over my face. And then I was told I got it, and he said something to me like, well, there are moments in our lives where our lives change forever, and that's really amazing, and those moments are moment to moment, just like acting. And then there are other things where it's not just our lives that change, it's like us at our very core, and this is a moment for you. And so congratulations, you got the role. And I was like, what? And then I registered what he said, and I started to cry, and then I got really excited, and there's this moment of panic where I'm like, is this a big prank? He's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. And then I was just like, if it's real, I need to call my mom. I need my parents. Can you call? And I couldn't pick up the phone to to dial. I was just like sitting there on the Zoom call shaking and it was all being recorded. And um, I was just, I couldn't dial. And he dialed, Sean dialed mm-hmm. my parents' landline <laughs> um, on a Sunday morning. A landline. Yeah. Impressive. And they, yeah, and they picked up and my, you could, you could hear in my dad's voice. So I think my dad cued into what was about to happen. And then he went and got my mom, but they were just completely unintelligible. I've seen, I've, I don't remember this myself, but I have since seen this Zoom call played back for me. Mm-hmm. So it's fresh in my mind now. Um, and they, all in the background, you can just hear my dad going, she's a good kid. I promise she's a good kid. And I'm like, oh, no, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then I, I got off with Sean. He answered my questions. He basically told me that beyond my parents and my best friend um, and my Ph.D. advisor, who obviously needed to be told that I was leaving school, that I couldn't tell anybody. And they all had to be sworn to secrecy. And then I got off uh, the call with him. And I didn't have any groceries. I just had, like, baking stuff. So I baked a ton of cookies, and I sat there, and I ate two dozen cookies by myself. And I FaceTimed my parents, and they went out, and they bought fancy champagne. And we just all sat there and cried. Um, I was in Pennsylvania, and my parents were in Rhode Island. So it was like we just just wanted to be together, and we couldn't. And it was just like we just all sat there and cried. But still, there's no better combo than cookies, nice champagne, (laughs) and happy tears. Happy tears. (laughs) It was great. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way. So you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, I love that. So you brought this up when you were talking about the casting process, but I'm curious how it applies to actually filming. Mm -hmm. What is a seemingly silly question about the way TV shows are made that, you know, maybe you were afraid to ask because it seemed like you should know it, but you would encourage more aspiring actors to have the courage to speak up and ask about? Um, Well, I think this I think I have two things. First, I really thought that movies were filmed with the director, a camera person, and maybe a lighting guy. Hmm. And that was like your crew. Like I knew that there were hair and makeup people, wardrobe people, but I didn't think they were actually there. I didn't think that there were 300 people in a room. I did not know what a best boy was, and I still really don't. <laughs> um, I, you know, I didn't know all of the different roles. I had never heard of craft services before. I didn't really know what a trailer was. I'd heard of it, but I thought... That was like something that was like a golden age starlet thing. I didn't mm. know. Um, so like all of these things I had to learn from the ground up on my first day. And I was like really terrified. Sean let me shadow him for three weeks. So I got to learn everything. I met with all the heads of department. I got to work with them to see how they did what they did. And then Sean took me through everything, like how he makes a shot list, how he decides what lens he's on, how he decides what frame he does and um, and I got to sit with him and it was like three weeks condensed, but it was four years of drama school, really. Wow. Um, so I learned the inner workings of sets that I now know, like even like experienced people sometimes don't get to learn or don't get to talk to people like this in this way. And so I'm just really grateful for that opportunity because um, I didn't know that every day I'd show up to work, 300 people were going to be watching me do my job for the first time. And I, I realized that a lot of people would get to see the final product, but I didn't think that was something every day I'd have to deal with. I think the biggest thing that I would like to tell newcomers um, to not be afraid of is to just ask questions. And I know sometimes it's really hard. Um, I didn't understand that that's not something that you can really do because you're taking time away from like 300 people who are each part of a giant puzzle and this these gears have to turn. But I think... If you don't ask questions, it will slow people down anyway. So it's worth the 30 seconds to just understand what you need to understand. Um, and if someone isn't patient with you, that's on them. That's not on you. Um, and so I think I'd like people to take more ownership over being okay not knowing something. And I would love for directors and producers and anyone listening to this who may be um, at the top of the totem pole to please take the same time. You don't have to go to the extreme that Sean did because that, I think, is completely unheard of. But to just take time with people who may be new to this to 
make sure that they feel seen and heard and valued, not just as ink in your pen, but as whole people who are helping you tell a story. And I think that's really important. Oh, it's of the utmost importance on any set, no matter what stage of your career you're at. I feel like that is just like the most basic thing anybody on a film set could do yeah. is make everybody around them feel whole and, and respect like, the respected, hard work yeah. that goes into their job. Yeah, and I think the set will be better because of it. And 100%. I think there is this sort of stigma, and I haven't experienced it, but I've definitely heard about it, that like people will go in and they'll respect heads of department, all oh, they respect the bigwigs, but... I think at the end of the day, the people who really make um, movies and TV shows run are the crew, mm-hmm. like the people running craft services, the people running craft services, the people who can support us by cleaning out our trailers, the people who are resetting things every time we, you know, have to dump water on each other or whatever. And I'm like, I think that's what's really extraordinary is we look at people on camera or we look at these famous directors or producers and we would give them the credit and they deserve all of the credit they get. But we can give some credit to these people who don't have the same amount of voice and reach. And I think that's so important because that those are the people who lifted me up alongside Sean and alongside our famous production team and our famous cast. They made me feel at home too. And it was really special to work with them. I will build on that and preface this next question by saying it is very unfair, and I know you could probably come up with a million answers to this question, but I love asking for an onset unsung hero. So can you tell me about someone who is not high up on the call sheet, doesn't have their name on the poster or anything mm. like that, but they made a big difference in your day-to-day and you appreciate them? I'm going to give you a few. Oh, I'll take it. I think our whole hair, makeup, wardrobe team, right down to the assistants and the runners, were pivotal to making me feel comfortable and happy and supported. Um, I think we had a wonderful cast PA um, named Josh, who was just fantastic. We all called him Lil Josh because we had a big Josh in our first AD. <laughs> um, so he was big Josh and, and our PA was Lil Josh. And so he was, he was just wonderful. Um, and we filmed in Hungary and he is uh, bilingual Hungarian and English. So it was just wonderful to be able to have someone who could not only help with the language gap, but also just was a good, funny person to like share a joke with. And he knew that when I come, came out of um, one of my big crying scenes, which most of this is like, there's a little bit of crying in this, he would always have chocolate. And so oh. that was really special. And I also want to give credit to um, my best friend, Molly, who is actually a member of our crew, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Um, Sean said, what can I do to make you feel supported? 300 people watching you do a new job. You're in a new country. You're going to another new country after this new country. You're doing something that, like, not a lot of people get to ever do, and it's probably big for you. Can we, like, get you a bigger apartment? Like, what can help you feel better here? What can help you feel like you belong more? And at the end of the day, you can come home. And I was like, my, my best friend. And he flew her out. And then she came to set. And then they hired her. And so she actually worked on set with us. And um, and I think a lot of people would agree with me that she was invaluable. And I'm not just biased, that she was invaluable to the production being what it was and to me not only being comfortable, but my guide dog Ingrid feeling like she had someone who could support her and her training because it's very particular. Um, and she just brought this knowledge of like, being best friends with someone who is low vision and how we can communicate my 
low visionness, which is very, very different from my character's experience with her eye condition. And she's totally blind and I'm not. And But how can we use like things that I didn't even know I did um, to communicate that on screen? Because a lot of times blindness isn't observable at all. And she really brought this really wonderful perspective um, to it that I don't think anyone really expected. So it's great. So we've emphasized how great Sean is we as have. a leader. I'm also curious about your experience working with him as an actor's director. Is there anything he did in that sense? And maybe even how he gives you notes that you thought really aligned well with how you like to receive notes and, you know, change in a scene depending on what he yeah. needs. And I think now that I've done some other stuff, I really have a good perspective on what Sean does uh, that's different than other directors. Mm -hmm. One thing I find really interesting is, uh, for those of you who don't know, like, directors often are just at the monitors. They might not be in the room with you. Um, and then they'll come in and give you notes, or they'll send someone else out to give you a note. And that's not always the case, but it often is. And one thing that Sean does is he's constantly in the room with you, and he has his iPad, and he uses that as his monitor. And so he would be sitting sometimes, like, as far away from me as you are right mm -hmm. now. And, like, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the stuff was like really tight close up. So he would always be with me, sort of like breathing the same air and making sure that not only did I have him there for support because it was my first time, but he would be really quick to give notes and to make sure that it he wasn't just like throwing spaghetti at a wall. He really knew every time what he wanted to get out of me. And obviously we would always have this conversation and sometimes the scene would evolve as it does. But he it always knew exactly the emotional beat he wanted to get out of a scene or what he needed to achieve to get to where we were going if it was something more transitional. And I think that's what he does that's really unique is he's not just thinking about editing. He's thinking about the moment. And actors are always living in a moment. And sometimes it's hard, I think, for directors also to be in that moment. But it seems very easy for him. Um, we're also both very ADHD, so we would both get hangry at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the set found that. <laughs> like, the set was like, no, my God, it's 3 p.m., someone get them cashews. cashews. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so that was, we, we definitely bonded a lot. But um, I'm quite a energetic person. I read people's energy really well. And so is Sean. But Sean is a very visually operating person and director. And so he had to make a lot of changes to be more careful with his words, I think, rather than just like throwing out random facial expressions mm -hmm. um, that he might be able to do with, um, <laughs> I'll just name drop Ryan Reynolds, that he might be able to do with Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> um, that he, he might not be able to do that with me or with Nell Sutton, who plays the little Marie, fantastically, by the way. And so I think that was what was really special is we were both evolving at the same time. We were both learning from each other. I was learning how to do my job, but he was learning how to direct someone who cannot see him as well. Like in certain lighting, I can definitely have much more vision. But if, it, if we're doing a scene that's outdoors in the sunshine, I'm not really getting much from him. Um, and so like how to shift accordingly and how to tell the story of a disability that people have long believed to be visible that actually isn't visible at all. And how do you communicate to an audience something that is essentially invisible um, was really remarkable uh, to us both, for us both to share that partnership and that development.
All right. So him working with you is of the utmost importance. I also love emphasizing the value of having a good scene partner. Yeah. A couple questions about that. Can you name something that another scene partner did for you on this set that you appreciated and will now strive to give your scene partners on future sets? Oh, my goodness. I think I... Oh, my goodness. I what What was really unique about my situation is... My first three, four weeks, maybe more of filming, uh, were the scenes where I was alone in the attic. So Marie is just like monologuing into a mic. It's kind of this type of situation or like staggering through starving, like like developing those like really intimate, isolated scenes. And that was my first month or so. And then my first scene with another actor. Can I spoil? Yeah. Okay. People have had time to watch, to watch this. this. <laughs> That's true. So spoiler alert, fast forward or whatever if uh, you haven't watched it was the scene with uh, Lewis, who plays mm. Werner, which the whole series is leading up to that point. And I'm like, well, no pressure then. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know how to like really work with another actor because we spent this whole time doing like solo stuff. And in retrospect, it was the smartest thing Sean could have done because I had built up my own foundation, my own technique, um, my own strength, and the character had this root that may not have happened if we were doing like, stuff where, you know, he had to give attention to other people. It was really, really smartly done in retrospect. But the scene with Lewis is is really pivotal. The whole, sh- the whole show is leaning on that moment. And it took about two days to film, maybe three. And I think what was really interesting is he knew that I was quite nervous about it. And he just tried to make sure that I was having fun in between takes because it's quite a heavy scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know... It's like eat peaches and kiss. So it's it was just very awkward. And I think what was really important was not only had the crew gotten to know me by then, but like I had gotten to know Lewis off camera. So we had this really nice rapport and he was able to just get in and make me laugh. Um, and we sort of both had to have quite emotional moments because in this scene, he's also telling me that my uncle, Etienne, played by Hugh Laurie, has died. And so that was was quite nerve wracking to me. Um, and we went off script for it. And I think that was my first experience of being able to go off script oh. comfortably. And it's now something that, you know, if I feel it in my soul and the character is speaking to me, I will just say it with confidence because I realized in that moment when we were feeling our scene really deeply and we did go off script the emotion was much more raw and real for both of us. So that's something that I always will, will I try not to think about because I don't want to over-intellectualize, but it's important to me when I'm developing a character to give my character enough of a voice inside my head that she can speak. Mm. So it was really cool. I'm veering veering away from my other uh, scene partner question because what you just said made me wonder this over mm. over intellectualizing things. And you also seem like you co- you come to set prepared mm-hmm. and attention to detail. Mm-hmm. What is the key to you know maybe taking all the research and preparation you've done, putting it in your back pocket, but then quieting your mind on set and letting yourself just be in the moment? I think I thought that was going to be the thing I struggled with the most, and it actually ended up being the easiest thing for me to do. And I don't know why, which is really sad because I would love to be able to explain it to myself. Um, but I do, I do do for all of my characters a ridiculous amount of prep. And a lot of it is based on human psychology. Like 
scent recall and music and these things that like I can I can connect to moments in my life that would be something that they would have felt and I also will think about like for someone like Marie she's really taxonomic so I we have this amazing source material in this beautiful book that I really dove into passages from the book coordinated with passages from the script that coordinated with a scent that I would either wear on my wrist or put on my clothes or I would just have a bottle in my bag that would coordinate to a song that I would put on my AirPods and like play as, you know, sometimes even as we were filming, Sean would have it on, on a Bluetooth speaker under the desk or something. So like that was very important to me to be able to have created those recalls first so that when I got to set, they were there. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's just making sure that she had a voice. Um, for another character I played, she was really rooted in like understanding animals. She was like really physical. So I would like use like movement references from animals. And I, I was a classical, classically trained ballerina. I did a lot of athletic stuff, a lot of martial arts and whatever. And so that was really easy for me to feel like she was a physical being more so than she was sent or musical or whatever the way Marie was. So I just try to create these things first and I do a stupid amount of research into time periods and to whatever, like an expert area that the character might have. Like I do all this research and then I won't do it once filming starts um, because I feel like whatever has stayed in my head at that point, then it, it's if it's muscle memory, it was important. Um, and the thing that I always try to do is make sure that I'm grounded. Hair and makeup really helps with that, like that, mm. that prep time. But um, I spent a lot of my life not feeling very confident or comfortable with myself, as I've kind of implied in a few places. So it is sometimes really easy to tune myself out and become someone else. Because in a lot of ways, before I started acting, I had spent more time... Um, developing characters in my head from books that I've read or movies that I watched and like I knew them better than I knew myself and now I get to do that with the characters I play but in creating these characters I also have been able to develop a sense of self-fortitude um, so through them I think that allows them to be able to to I feel healed personally and that is a testament to like years of therapy but also to just being able to like find an art form that's not really an outlet, but is still a vessel for what I want to tell the world. And each character individually gives me a way to do that, that I don't really ever expect or plan. So it's really cool. What a beautiful answer. My Thank God, you. just to be able to, to gain in that sense of self, but then also pair that with the <laughs> launching of, of an epic career that thank I'm you. very eager to see Oh my flourish. God, no, thank you. I, I'm going to wind down in a minute, but I want to go back to that one scene partner question that I had in the back yeah, of no, my of mind. The Peaches scene might answer this question, yeah. but it could be something else. Can you give me an example of a time on set when something a scene partner did for you helped you reach something in your own character that you might not have been able to tap, to tap into, into without them? Um, yeah, I think actually every time I worked with Mark, which was, mm -hmm. we do have a lot of scenes together, I was learning something about her because the relationship between the two characters is really symbiotic. And he, as, as Marie's dad, is so attuned to his daughter's needs. And the relationship is almost an inverse in a way because he's giving her the tools she needs to be independent. But in doing so, he's almost sacrificing a lot of his 
independence, but he's doing so willingly. He wants his life to be hers in a way. And it's this really beautiful, special relationship. But one thing that Mark and I would always do is, you know, when they were like winding up and like, like this is the moment. If you've never been on a set, there's like this moment where people are like, okay, we're going to go. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we ready? And they're never really ready. That's the secret. And they, they, <laughs> you know, there and then you're going to stand there for another maybe 30 seconds, maybe 10 minutes. You never know. And in that period of time, Mark would always tell me a story as Daniel. And he would speak to me as Marie and he would be like, well, do you remember this time when we were just wandering around and you picked up this dandelion and I said to you and whatever. And so we would just, and I would answer him. In the beginning, I was really embarrassed because it's Mark Ruffalo. Um, and I grew up a really big Marvel fan. And so he was yeah. my favorite Avenger. <laughs> so I most, the first two days I was utterly terrified and I just went and talked to him. And I, my little mouth would just hang open and I'd just be like, oh, you are real. And then, um, then I got into the habit of like, I felt more comfortable and I would just talk back as Marie. And I don't know. It's interesting because, like I said, I do all this intellectualizing first and this physical work first. But that was very different for me. And now it's something that I do do and I will ask scene partners on other projects if they want to do. And sometimes people don't bite and that's totally okay. Um, but I will do it myself or I'll do it with Molly, my best friend who I've mentioned. And we'll just, I'll be like, you have to pretend you're so-and-so. Like, oh, Aria, this is why I don't act. This is why I write. And then, you know, we'll, but we'll just talk. And sometimes that will be helpful because it's natural. And I don't think I would have ever found that if it wasn't for, for Mark. And we did that every single day till the day we wrapped. Mm. So it was great. What a good technique to have in it was your really back pocket. Cool. All right. I love ending on this particular question. So in this industry, I think we celebrate each other's work, mm -hmm. and that is wonderful, but nobody says good job to themselves nearly enough. So can you pinpoint something you did in this series oh, no. that you know you'll be able to look back on and say to yourself, damn, I am proud of what I did there? That's, no, that's like the worst question you could have asked me. I The struggle. worst thing is I asked that question. The question came to mind initially because I have a problem. You have a problem. Okay, so you get how I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> I struggle a lot with imposter syndrome. Um, so it was really hard for me to get to set and realize that someone thought that I might be the right person to not only play this role, but also like literally create change in an industry that needs to change um, in terms of representation and inclusion. And I remember saying to myself, like, you can hate on yourself. You can talk down to yourself. You can struggle that's human, that's okay. But if you keep doing it longer than, you know, whatever the next 30 seconds, you are disrespecting everyone who hired you. You are disrespecting the people who cast you, the casting assistants who you've loved, the casting directors who took you under their wing, Sean, every single crew member who is here, you are the lead in this show and they are here to support you. And if you disrespect yourself, you are disrespecting the 400, 500 people who got you here and your mom and dad who fought to get you access to just be a human being. And that's what gets me through the day. So I am proud that I can say that I, you know, it took me a while and it took a lot of work internally and externally that I now can say I learned how to come to set every morning and feel comfortable and feel as if I belonged. And that I created something that when I watched it for the first time, I forgot that it was me because if I had 
over-processed the fact that it was me or over-intellectualized the fact that it was me, I may have been too insecure to enjoy and appreciate the beautiful piece of art we all made together. And I, that's the biggest takeaway, I think, of my entire life, not just of this project, that I have peace with myself and that, yes, maybe I could go back and do something better and maybe this or that or the other thing, but I trust every single person who I work with. I think Sean is just a remarkable director. I think we have James Newton Howard doing our score and he's a god practically. And like, you know, my incredible scene partners, Mark and Hugh and Lewis and Lars, who we didn't get to talk about, all of these people made something beautiful and I got to be a part of it. Um, and I get to enjoy it now. And taking joy and pride in my work has been really hard because I came, I came from a background where people told me I didn't matter. And to sit here and tell you that I think I do matter and that I feel like I'm good at what I do and I deserve to be here is never something I thought I could say. So thank you for asking. Oh, what a beautiful answer. Hold, hold tight to that every single step of the way because this is very clearly something special for you, but there is no doubt in my mind that what you do in this show and what you're doing in this industry is going to inspire a lot of people out thank there. You. So Thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience you. with us. And the ladies' wonderful. night door is open. Anytime you want to come back, We'll be right here. I for think you. you need to interview Ingrid, who's snoring loudly <laughs> on the floor. There is nothing more soothing than a puppy snore. Snoring, Human yeah. beings can snore. I'm Dogs curious snore. if we can hear it in playback. Probably <laughs> not because it's so directional, but I'm hoping <laughs> these catch it just because I like it. Yeah. So you're missing out on the ambiance, people who are just listening to this after. I'm so sorry. But no, thank you so much. And till next time. Yes. Thank you.